Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us for a special pre-Iowa caucus podcast is Bill Crystal, who has been uh, poring over the data and numbers and also apparently having to sh- take a few shots of alcohol to get through it. Is that right, Bill? Basically, but not yet this morning on Sunday morning. I'm laying off for a few hours. Oh, okay. you know? <laughs> it's just it's got to be hard to look at uh, some of these numbers in some ways. For example, the Republican Party seems on the verge of nominating a candidate, Donald Trump, who, according to the new numbers from Gallup, has a 60 percent unfavorable rating uh, across the United States, the highest number Gallup has seen for a major candidate. Right. Republicans may well make their front runner on Monday night, Donald Trump, who, as you say, <clears throat> excuse me, really, it's just hard to see how he could win a general election with that number, 60% unfavorable. No one's had a number like that going into uh, a general election year. Uh, maybe he'll change it. You know, he's a convincing guy. Maybe we'll have a crazy race where the other candidate will have his high unfavorable number. Maybe we'll have a three- or four-way race. You don't need 50% to win. But if you're a Republican who just wants – you know, has some belief in the traditional polls, and maybe that's a mistake this year. But if you have some belief that the world hasn't entirely, the political world hasn't entirely changed and been transformed, you've got to be very nervous, leaving aside whether you'd be a good president, you've got to be very nervous about a process that looks like it's going to make Donald Trump the front runner, though not by any means the, the definitive, you know, uh, candidate or anything like that on Monday night. Uh, I was talking to um, a Trump uh, supporter and activist who said people need to look at what Trump has already done to his favorable unfavorables, that among Republicans, his unfavorable was above 65 percent when he started. And now a majority of Republicans say they could see him as president. So their argument is, Bill, just give him a chance. And by the time November arounds, he'll flip those numbers with the wider populace and he'll be President Trump. Well, I mean, look, he has done things that I didn't think were possible. So, you know, maybe he'll continue to do things that weren't possible. Even in Iowa, though, where he's leading in the Saturday night, you know, Des Moines Register poll that was released, that traditionally has been pretty accurate, um, not leading by a huge amount, but leading with 28%. Even there, his numbers, favorable, unfavorable, is something I can't remember, like 53, 47, something like that. I mean, he's getting a high percentage of those who like him, but half the Republican electorate, is, has an unfavorable view of him, and still, let's not forget, 70% apparently don't intend to vote for him Monday night. So I think the Trump front, I mean, look, if he wins, it'll be a big victory. It will be a shock to the system. People like me who said he'll fade, he'll fade as the election day gets closer, as voters get more serious about their choice, may well be proven wrong or partly wrong. Uh, that's not, now we're not certain he's going to win Monday night, but if he does, that will be the lesson. And I think it will be a big moment on Tuesday morning. I, I don't really agree with people who are saying, um, well, this poll is kind of what people have been predicting, and there won't be any big surprises on the Republican side. I think whatever happens Monday night will be a surprise in the sense that people have not really internalized the notion, I don't think, that Trump could actually win Iowa, then presumably be ahead by quite a bit in New Hampshire and look likely to win that and really look like the favorite, again, not the the prohibitive favorite, but the favorite to be the Republican nominee once the actual voting has begun. I think that could be a real shock to the system. I don't know what, you know, the thing about shocks to systems is you don't know what effect they have, but (laughs) that will be a very big moment on on Tuesday morning. So, uh, but I'm not convinced. I think Trump has changed the minds that he can change, the people who are going to be open to him anyway, the people who want to be for a Republican and are Mm -hmm. willing to talk themselves into ignoring certain aspects of Trump's biography and, and some of his positions. But I just think it's going to get more, harder and harder to change uh, views about him, about Trump as we get into the general election. 
and as he has to win over some independents and even a few Democrats. But again, he's proven us all wrong so far. And I guess I guess his supporters will say, don't believe this to these polls any more than than, than believing, you know, polls six months ago that showed he had uh, 65% unfavorable among Republicans, and it's really only 35 or 40%. Uh, so you've got uh, Trump uh, polling at 28 in the last minute poll you just mentioned from the Des Moines Register, uh, Ted Cruz at 23, Marco Rubio at 15. I think it's worth noting how horribly everybody else is doing. In other ways, in this whatever it is, 10, 12, 15 people play race, there, everyone else is, you know, Jeb Bush, bye-bye. He's not, he's, it's not he's on the cusp. He's not even on the cusp of the cusp. And I think that's fascinating. Two guys who won Iowa in the past, not even on the map. Uh, does that tell us that Trump and the relationship to Trump has already changed this race? In other words, people are adding together both their beliefs and then their strategic voting. So, for example, if you could go with Christie, Rubio, Bush, or Kasich, you've decided, well, I'll jump on Rubio because he's the guy who will uh, have, an, I believe, will have a longer-term impact on the election. I mean, here's one thing to notice in that respect. The four top people in the race are, I guess, Trump in the Des Moines poll, Des Moines Register poll, are uh, Trump, Cruz, Rubio, and Carson. None, of, two of them have never held elective office. The other two are the most junior, you might say, in the field. Mm-hmm. They're both the youngest, Cruz and Rubio, and have been in office, I think, the least long of almost mm-hmm. everyone else there. Uh, so, not only is the electorate not rewarding experience or having run for president before in the case of Huckabee and Santorum or having a familiar name in the case of Bush and having been, you know, in, in his case, a two-term governor of a big state and so forth. The electorate is, is positively, in Iowa at least, uh, clobbering those who you would think, you know, in a traditional Republican view of things, Republicans have tended to like experienced candidates and older candidates. Uh, they're going totally in the opposite direction. It really puts an exclamation point, I think, on the notion that this is such a different year, that the mood of the electorate is so, it's not just anti-establishment, it's anti-experience, it's anti-familiarity almost. Um, It so much wants big change, and uh, they're sort of figuring out which of these candidates will bring about big change. Another point I'd make, though, going forward, if you just try to think, okay, what does it look like Tuesday with a week towards New Hampshire, I mean, one big question, I don't know the answer to this, obviously, but let's say Rubio ends up, I think he'll end up ahead of 15, let's just say 18 or something like that, a pretty decent third place showing. Um, He could catch Cruz, incidentally, but who knows. Anyway, let's say he ends up at 18, and as you say, every single other person generally thought to be in the, quote, establishment lane is in single digits and really mostly low single digits in Iowa. Right now in those New Hampshire polls, Rubio, Bush, Kasich are all around 10, 11, 12, Christie even maybe 7 or 8, um, splitting that vote. If you're a Kasich or a Bush voter in New Hampshire, do you say, well, I don't care about Iowa. We, we have a low opinion of the right. Iowa caucuses. New Hampshire's first in the nation. God damn it, and I'm sticking with my vote for the guy I've, who's, who's spent a lot of time up here and has convinced me. Or do you say, uh, you know, that guy's not going to make it. I mean, and no one's come from 3% in Iowa to be the nominee of either party, and therefore we better go to Rubio. I, I could argue that one either way, honestly. Right. I think the Rubio campaign will try very, very, very hard over that next week to consolidate the vote the so-called establishment vote behind Rubio in New Hampshire. One last question before I move to the Democrats, where you could argue the bigger headline is, and that's the mailer that Ted Cruz sent out uh, with people's voting history and their neighbors' 
voting history as far as participating in, in basically it's it's just your record it's a public record I've, i used to run campaigns i used them all the time not like this you know d- did you vote in the last primary the last the general etc and uh, it looks like a report card's got a lot of f's on it for some people and uh, it strikes me in two ways one is it seems ham-handed which i think describes ted cruz's political personality ham-fisted and also it seems a little desperate michael warren is a great piece on the weekly standard right now he just filed late saturday night about how Cruz has been in every county, has a captain in every county, and still he's struggling. It's not just that he's not beating Trump. He's around 23%, and he's done so much work there. If, if Cruz can't really you know, rock and roll in a place like Iowa, where can he? Yeah, and those mailers, they've been used in campaigns. They're usually used in general election campaigns where it's sort of getting out your party's voters and you shame them a little bit by saying, uh, you know, you're, you're going to get an F grade if you don't vote. I mean, it does, they make it look a little misleadingly like an official document, and the Iowa Secretary of State has criticized Cruz. I know these things tend to be inside baseball, and voters don't really vote for president based on them. But I think if the Cruz campaign is faltering, I'm not sure it is, but that seems to be the conventional wisdom of people out there and people like Mike Warren, who's traveling with him, seems to think it's not going great, looks a little desperate. And then you get this story and people in Iowa are nice. This is a Republican primary. I mean, most of the Republicans like the other Republicans running, even if they're not going to vote for them. Right. I mean, most of them are or they all have positive, favorable, unfavorable, I think, among Republicans. So it seems like, gee, you know, you're talking about choosing among Republicans and suddenly Cruz is pulling out this kind of heavy artillery. It could hurt him a little bit. Yeah. And and once again, it raises the question about uh, if Cruz isn't a natural fit in Iowa, where is he a natural fit? Uh, Hillary Clinton, some people argue, is a natural fit for uh, Leavenworth, uh, Bill. (laughs) And uh, this news that hit Friday night that there were 22 top secret documents on Hillary Clinton's homebrew in her basement server is pretty astonishing. And it's so funny. I don't know about your uh, uh, email, Bill, but mine immediately filled up with, the Clint, the Obama White House has to be behind this. There's no way this comes out the Friday before Iowa without Obama's imprimatur. This is part of the whatever, you know, put in Biden or some other conspiracy of the day. What was your reaction when you saw the story? And what and, and what do you think is really going on? Uh, well, my reaction was that she really has a serious problem. I mean, what she did with the email server is I've said this in the beginning. If you've been in government, it's just unbelievable that she did this. And so now we're getting in dribs and drabs the implications of having your own private email server as Secretary of State, something no one has ever done, and there's a good reason no one's ever done it. So I think it's bad for her. From a political point of view, the story broke Friday night, so it wasn't really captured in the Des Moines Register poll. Maybe it's having some effect in Iowa, and she's only three points ahead of Sanders. And the O'Malley vote's not going to count because you need 15% in the Democratic side in each caucus to, to, to register a vote. Otherwise, they disperse your delegates, and that's they're probably mostly for Sanders. I think just analytically, you'd have to say the Hillary-Sanders race right now is 50-50, probably tilting a little to Sanders. He's getting huge crowds out there. Um, she's not particularly. I mean, that talk about bombshells. I mean, that's another thing people haven't internalized. It's one thing to say, well, Hillary will have a tough time in the first two right. Uh, the first caucus and the first primary. But, you know, she's got the South Carolina firewall and she's got the money in the organization. It's another thing to really wake up in the morning and see Sanders 51, Clinton 49, which I think we could well see. And then think about New Hampshire, where it looks like Sanders could win more easily. And then there's uh, they vote in South Carolina, the Democrats, a week later than the Republicans. So then there's about two and a half weeks off. And, you know, you sort of wonder what 
like what's going to happen now if the obama people are behind all this they're kind of playing it awfully cute because it's kind of late in the day for people to be getting in the race it's just technically not that easy to get on the ballot in a lot of these states you can't in some states maybe they can change the rules maybe all kinds of incredible things will happen uh, i don't think that's out of the question it's such a crazy year but i mean think about that who would have predicted that a year ago six months ago really even three months ago you wake up Tuesday morning and you might well have Trump and Sanders winning the Iowa caucus and well positioned to then win the New Hampshire primary. And then you have the Democrats with the Nevada caucus before South Carolina. Which I guess is that's a right. Yeah. And a caucus is another opportunity for the feel the burn crowd to make a real difference. So this is where Hillary stumbled in 2008. And if the feel the burn crowd has two wins under their belt, you know, that's it's no longer just college kids, you know, kind of protesting and fighting the man. All of a sudden it's, hey, we could win this thing. And that gives Hillary another hard, messy fight in Nevada. I just keep coming back though to the unbelievable. I mean, you, you get used to these things gradually. It's like the frog in the boiling water, right. you know, so now it seems close. Okay, well, Sanders might win Iowa. He may well win New Hampshire, but I mean, how unbelievable is that? If we, you know, six months ago, eight months ago, it was, well, O'Malley might be able to challenge Clinton or one of the other sort of semi-respectable candidates might get 30% against her or something. Sanders is a fringe candidate, you know, the kind of Ralph Nader of this cycle or something. Uh, who, and then suddenly he's getting half the vote in Iowa and maybe more than half the vote in New Hampshire. It's a pretty, it's, it's the combination of Trump and Sanders. If that, if that happens Tuesday morning, I think we're really in a different world politically. And, and all bets are off, including in terms of what happens in subsequent primaries, including people getting in the races. Think about endorsements, incidentally. Right. I mean, will Elizabeth Warren endorse Sanders the way Ted Kennedy endorsed Obama? You know, after the first, I think Kennedy did it, what, before After New South Hampshire? Carolina. It was after, after South, South Carolina, Carolina because South the Carolina. Clintons had set up South Carolina to make it look like Barack Obama was the candidate of black America, which was a right. self-limiter. And it was a really smart, ugly strategy. And it looked like that was going to be the nar narrative for the rest of the race. And suddenly the Kennedy family steps up and completely changes the conversation after that uh, uh, primary. And it was it was all downhill for the Clintons after that. What if Elizabeth Warren steps up and says, I really do think Bernie Sanders is, you know, carrying the progressive flag here. Suddenly, the whole narrative again, he mm -hmm. starts getting support from actual colleagues. So who knows? Um, we'll be back on Monday night, I guess, right, to discuss what the actual results and, and, and the, I guess the implications will get clearer. But I think the main advice I would give to people trying to think it through is, you know, just expect more surprises. And it's a very dynamic process. I think the one mistake the media make, and it's a natural one, is you look at a snapshot, you look at the polls in New Hampshire, you look at the polls in South Carolina, you look at the money in the bank, and you say, well, we kind of know how this is going to go. But the, the shock to the system of the Iowa results and the, in both parties, and then the dynamic process, the billiard balls that start hitting each other, people getting out of the race, people endorsing new debates, new developments, new news, like with the Clinton emails Friday night, you're really then in just a different a different world and a fast-moving world for the next uh, for the rest of February. Exactly. So Monday night we'll be here with a podcast, Tuesday with another follow-up podcast for that brave new world. Bill Crystal, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Hey, my pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.